Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie, and it's a pleasure to be joined today by Dr Gay Mannering. Gay is Emeritus Senior Lecturer in Education at the University of Dundee, and has led a long career, which she has discussed in her new book, Learning My Living. So Gay, can I ask you please, what was the inspiration for this book? When I retired, several colleagues asked me to talk about my experiences in education and some of the differences from teaching in the 70s and 80s and I gave a few anecdotes and explained a few things and they were very interested and asked for more and suggested that perhaps I would write a book and other people heard about some of the places I'd worked abroad and again thought this might be an interesting story so I wrote a couple of chapters and let people have a look and said what do you think And again, people were saying, yes, it would make a good book. So I thought, well, okay, I'll try it. And I found that writing it was actually quite therapeutic because I was having to come to terms with retirement at the same time as the pandemic. So it was a very strange time to be in and having to look back at my experiences and my life and how things had changed over the years was actually quite a good thing to be doing at that time. Now, with a long career in higher education, Uh, How did the book itself come to take its current form? Was there a lot of development involved? One of the things I was involved in a lot was teaching new university teachers how to teach from all different disciplines. And one of the things we asked people to do is to think about their own philosophy of teaching and learning. So the idea was to focus the book on my own philosophy of teaching and learning and how that had developed. So that meant that I had to go right back to the beginning to my childhood, my school days, my own student days, before I actually began talking about my career and the changes that I had seen. So the first part of the book was really chronological in that sense. But as I worked through it, there were several topics which kept cropping up. So I decided to add some themes at the end to cover things like resilience and well-being and volunteering. So that was the second part of the book. You discuss in the book the many changes that have taken place in the teaching of education over the past few decades, including information technology, what would you say were the main developments that you noted during this period? Of course the changes in technology are the main ones. When I started teaching it was overhead projectors and handouts and now it's all done by computers and online. I've done a lot of work with distance learning students and the original distance learning courses were with booklets and um, phone calls. And now, of course, again, it's online with um, video streaming and um, interactive discussions. So there have been fantastic differences which have allowed people to engage more from all parts of the world, from all times of day. And that has been a big advantage. And also, of course, you can record things so they can look at them at a later date. Sometimes, though, this speed of communication can have a disadvantage because people fire off an email without realising there are problems with it and without checking it. So sometimes it can be a bit of a a disadvantage as well. Another change, I think, has been that there is now much more openness about the procedures and students now understand the clear criteria and the expectations. I think when I was a student it was always a a bit unknown and you didn't quite know what you tried to do. So that that openness and transparency is really important. And of course Really, now there are far more students, and it's really a business. The university is run as a business, so they need to think about students as customers, and they quite rightly demand more. 
but it means that decisions are made really for financial rather than educational reasons. And the university tends to measure success in the number of students who pass rather than necessarily looking at the details of the student experience, which is what interests the lecturers more. Now you discuss throughout your book um, in some detail the challenges of the, the professional aspects of uh, working in the higher education sector, but in what ways do you feel that students have changed over the years? Do you feel they're facing different challenges now in comparison to when you first started working in the higher education sector? And do you think their expectations are different in any way? I think one difference is that there are now far more students going into higher education. Now it's almost the norm. When I was um, in school in the, in the 1960s, it was really quite unusual. But now it seems to be the normal thing that people go into university. And I'm not sure it's necessarily the best thing for everybody. Some people would be better suited to go to college and do a trade course. Some people would be better with doing um, an apprenticeship or by getting a career and having in-house training. And I think really careful um, advice to students at that stage when they're making the decisions would be probably a really good idea. The other big difference, of course, is about finance. I was lucky to have a grant. Nowadays, students have to have a loan and they build up crippling debts. And they often means that they take on a job as well, so they are not focused on their studies. And that's a real change. But there is one really positive difference is that now um, we give courses and advice on study skills and time management, helping students cope with the stresses of, of studying. And all of that kind of advice is really useful and just was not available um, 30 years ago. You also mentioned the challenges involved in moving from one campus to another during the course of your career. How difficult was it, do you think, to adapt to meet the requirements of different institutions over the years? I think the really practical difficulty from moving from Dundee College of Education to the main university was simply having to commute um, and instead of just nipping around the corner I had to drive through the city uh, at a busy time and then try to find a parking place um, and if you didn't get there early enough you didn't get a parking place even though you'd paid hundreds of pounds so that was a really annoying frustration about it. But I was quite happy working within a big university and a much larger organisation. Because I was working across all departments, I was able to integrate quite fully. Many of the colleagues within my school, I think, didn't have that advantage and they felt perhaps a little bit isolated and within a silo. Is there any particular knowledge or advice that you would give your younger self that would have been useful when you were first starting out in your career? I've had lots of people who've helped me and advised me and supported me over the years but it would have been nice to have had one person who was a sort of continuing mentor right the way through, rather than having different people and finding different people at each stage. So that would have been really, really useful. The other thing is perhaps I should have had a career plan. I didn't. I tended just to take opportunities when they were offered, but I didn't particularly look for them. But on the other hand, I've had a very interesting and stimulating career, so maybe I was right not to have a career plan. How do you feel the teaching of education is changing and in what ways do you see it developing over the next few decades? I haven't got a crystal ball so I'm not going to try to guess but what I would like to happen is I'd, I'd like the students to be more involved in decisions about their own, the way they study and how they study and what they're trying to study and what they're learning and equally closer links with employers so that we are providing at the university 
students who've got the right skills, the right attitudes, which are really needed. And so a closer relationship between the university and the employers and the students, these are the three working together in a meaningful way, I think would be a really good idea. And also perhaps a lot less bureaucracy, which really seems to get in the way and really frustrates people. And also much better care for the mental health of students and staff in terms of just dealing with the normal stress, understanding that too much pressure just doesn't actually help. You find that students have three different modules and they all have de um, deadlines and assignments at the same time. Staff are working on different teams and again they have really busy times all happening at the same time and then loose times and that kind of restructuring needs to be looked at because there's just more and more stress and because of the pandemic even there when people were trying to cope with that the levels of stress was really horrendous. So you've discussed something of the, the holistic approach um, necessary to support students. Um, do you feel there are any particular um, developments that need to be looked at in order to ensure that uh, students are supported not only in their studies but in terms of the, the lifestyle change that comes from making that transition from secondary school into, into higher education? There are lots of transitions which are important, not just from school into university or from work into university, but also going from, say, first year in university into the second year, and then perhaps going into your final year, because there are real differences in the way you need to approach things, and the students need to realise that they need to suddenly go up a gear each year, and that can be quite challenging. Um, but interestingly now, certainly at Nundee, and I'm sure other universities too, we now provide quite a lot of um, support for students. There are support services, um, but each, each student also has a designated person who will support them and be there available and will help act as their, their mentor, their encourager, and they can go and talk to this person at any time. And that person will also look out for if students are sort of looking unhappy um, or, or concerned and they can raise any issues that they have. And one of the things when we're encouraging new student, new lecturers is to say, well, just look at your students and you might be the first people to notice if somebody comes in and is just looking very, very tired or dirty or grubby. Um, and sometimes we find that the students actually have lost money and they can't afford to feed themselves. They may be sleeping rough. All this doesn't happen. So we need to be alert for that. And then we need to know that there are systems in place that can help. There's a hardship fund. There are ways that we can help and support students. And we do a lot now to encourage people to actually access these services. And we're much more sympathetic and understanding. Now, it seems to me, on reading your book, that you very skillfully make the distinction between education and learning and why these are two different things. There has been a lot of controversy in the news recently about several universities across the UK who have been um, removing from um, various departments particular subjects which are well established in arts and the humanities and there's been considerable and vigorous debate about what kind of implications this has for the university system um, if it's not offering um, the fullest range of uh, subjects is this in some way a challenge um, to offering students uh, the broadest possible range of learning opportunities do you have a view on this subject and do you feel perhaps some subjects are benefiting 
in ways that others perhaps are suffering from it? Obviously things like medicine, law, engineering, there's a clear vocational um, and career in mind, so that's straightforward. But as you say, um, subjects like history, art and so on, um, it, are these really necessary? And I can understand why, for financial reasons, sometimes it's a cut. But I think the answer is that these subjects actually can provide appropriate skills, but the lecturers and the students need to know how. And so if a student does a module on an arts topic or humanities, they need to be able to say, actually, what I've done within this module is I've learned how to analyse, I've learned how to argue, I've learned how to find things, I've learned how to present a case, I've learned how to analyse data. And these are things which are transferable. But we need to highlight these things and say to the students, look at what you've learned. You can sell this to a future employer. And to make a link from one module to another of the things which are really going to help you, not just about passing that module, but increasing your own competence, your own confidence and your own skills. Yes, it's interesting you make that point, actually, because it, as an English literature graduate, um, I've spoken to other graduates who have gone into a variety of different areas, some into journalism, some into marketing, some into librarianship. It's a very, very broad range of, uh, of different vocations that people are able to, to go into, perhaps because English literature is one of those great interdisciplinary courses, uh, which encourages uh, cross-pollinisation of ideas between one subject area and another. Do you think perhaps in the years to come this is something that's going to pose a challenge to universities? Do you think perhaps there's going to be more room for arts and humanities institutions which are separate from uh, systems that have more of a, an emphasis on science and technology? I think increasingly it's being driven by money and the, the grant money is in science and technology. Um, that's where the hard money is, that's where the universities are going to be forced to go um, the reason we have so many international students is because they bring in the money and they are going to come for courses which are going to be things science, technology, but also management. These are the areas that are going to bring in the money and that's what the university is going to be forced to go for um, because they are being driven by well, government initiatives and the, the grants and the, the quotas that they have to abide by. I think it's a shame um, because when I went to university, okay, I did a science degree, but I learned so much more. I learned about art and drama, and it was a real enlightenment for me. And that, I think, is a bit missing now. It's so driven by, get this thing under your belt, and you know, bring in these people, and these are the things being driven by money. And, you know, it's interesting you make that point because it ties in very strongly, I feel, to the, the closing sections of your book where you talk about self-education and the many different opportunities that there are now to learn new skills and to find out more about, about uh, different disciplines. Um, do you feel that because of the internet that this is something that is continuing to develop now or do you think that uh, there's entirely new opportunities still to come? There is so much happening on the internet and you can learn so much. There are wonderful courses and many of them are free. But you still, I think, need the personal interaction. And even when I was running distance learning courses where most of it was done at a distance, the personal interaction with the tutor, a designated tutor, was so necessary. And bringing people together, maybe just a couple of times a year, for an interaction face to face. I mean, the, the Open University has always found summer schools are important. And 
there is something different and intangible that you cannot replicate online, no matter how good your technology is. And trying to set up local groups um, has always had technical problems and logistical problems. So you do need to find some way to maintain that, um, that personal link. Yes, because one thing that comes out of all of your book, actually, uh, I feel, is the importance of learning for learning's sake. Um, and the way that you, um, I feel, emphasise just how important it is to be open-minded, to find ways that different subjects can sometimes intersect in ways which are useful really to people who follow sometimes completely different disciplines uh, and the, the different opportunities that can arise from those kind of situations um, when it comes to original research. Do you feel that that's something that will continue to be the case now or do you think that perhaps um, interdisciplinary research is something that might be possibly downplayed because of the, the way in which um, the education system is, is changing by economic necessity? Actually, interdisciplinary things are encouraging um, and often if you're trying to get a grant one of the things is it makes you not make sure you have more than one organization involved and more than one discipline so that seems to be something which is driving things forward and I think there are th some big organizations and big decision makers who do see the value of these cross-curricular things and making sure that you can learn a lot from one organization to the other and I certainly found when I was going around and helping people in um, drama one day and history the next and physics the next and engineering the next. I could actually see links from one to the other and would often make people um, meet together and share their ideas because there are things which are common ground and which can be adapted. So now that the book has been published, how do you feel people have been responding to it? I've had lots of positive comments which has been lovely. But what's been really nice is the way I've been able to reconnect with people that I hadn't seen or even thought about for about 30 years. Um, because I've told people about the book and I've found out about them and we've actually gone back and shared experiences from years and years ago. Sometimes of course it's hard to find people again. Um, if they're, they're famous you can get them on the internet, um, otherwise it's really quite hard. But I did manage to find one lecturer from Exeter when I was there in 1960 and he's now retired but he's still um, on the books if you like and he remembered me and we're now in contact which is lovely. Um, previous colleagues I found one's gone to Australia, one's gone to Taiwan, two have published lots of books, one's opened, started a publishing company and we've actually now re-established a contact so that's been really nice. But one of the things I've been most pleased about is that people have said that reading the book has made them think about their own stories, their own education, their own schooling, um, their own career, and to reflect on that. And I think stimulating that has been one of the things I wanted to do, and I'm pleased that that has happened. Now, you have very kindly pledged to donate your uh, royalties from the book to Versus Arthritis. Why is this particular charity the one that you've chosen? Well, fortunately, I don't myself suffer from arthritis, but I have family members who do and who have suffered terribly, and I think it's um, an awful disease, and it doesn't get the publicity that cancer, for instance, does. Um, and I did a lot of work with a charity for arthritis where I was running courses on well-being for people who had a chronic disease, and that got me interested in the whole thing about running courses on well-being, and I've been doing that for 12 years now, including doing some online during the pandemic. 
So I feel very grateful to that organisation that actually got me in that direction. And so I'm very happy for them to benefit from the royalties. Well, Gay, thank you very much for having joined us today to talk about Learning My Living. It's a book which I think is certain to be of interest to anyone who has um, experience of the higher education sector or simply who's interested in the very many different applications that there are um, when it comes to education, when it comes to open learning um, and when it comes to, in fact, lifelong learning and the many different opportunities that are establishing themselves today. So thank you so much for having written this very enlightening book uh, and for uh, talking to us about it today. Thank you very much, Tom. Learning My Living is available to buy from all good independent retailers and online booksellers worldwide. Thanks for joining us today. I hope that you'll tune in again soon. If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.